When I come up to the uh, front of the hall at the, in the evening time to give a talk, I like to take a moment just to pause and remember my gratitude and appreciation for the teachings of the Buddha. It seems from my reading of what his life was like and what he offered that it was not always an easy journey for him. And uh, nonetheless, what he offered to me personally, and it seems to, to all of us, to humanity, was something remarkable and precious. And so I like to take a sort of in the traditional way a, a few moments just to remember and reconnect with that. And there's something in that of just uh, you know, allowing one's head to touch the ground. It's not something we do usually unless we're employing a pillow and planning to go to sleep. Um, there's something about just bowing and uh, honoring that which we appreciate, that which we value is something, something powerful. And just before I, I came in, I was uh, just ta taking a few moments to walk around outside and just enjoy the quiet of the evening and in the dark as I was walking I just without realizing it came within really just uh, sort of four or five feet less than two yards just very close to a, a rabbit and as I saw it there and just immediately paused and I'm guessing it noticed I was there as well just just being there there was just that moment of just something very sweet of what it is when we encounter another being and there's an opportunity to just inhabit the space together it's not about the rabbit it's not about me particularly it's just oh here we are and there's something lovely about guy house and some of you will have perhaps noticed this and that the, the rabbit doesn't immediately run away that this is a place of safety for rabbits and humans and very sweetly it began feeding and i don't think i've ever heard the sound of a rabbit eating before, like actually plucking the leaves of the grass and then munching them because I guess I've never been close enough to a rabbit before to hear it or maybe it's never, if I've been close to a rabbit, never been quiet enough. But something of that quality of, of both safety and peacefulness here but also the quiet and the stillness somehow offered me this very sweet experience which I thought I'd share with you because uh, I think it it speaks to something of what's here for us in terms of coming close to our, our human sensitivity and our tenderness and our vulnerability and also the, the sweetness of what can be felt in just a simple encounter. That's not a, I didn't get anything from the rabbit and I, I imagining this little creature didn't get anything from me. And yet somehow, at least from my end, to just be in the same space together, something precious could happen. For the rabbit, I think it was more to do with getting to continue eating. For me, it was getting to enjoy the rabbit. So we, we come here into this retreat. We come into that. We place ourselves in this situation. And, um, you know, we probably most of us feel a little sort of more hardened or armored or sort of battle weary in life than the sense of what a a soft furry creature might evoke for us and uh, 
as uh, you know, many, including myself, enjoy to have contact with, you know, with creatures, because they, I think, remind us of something about ourselves, something that we appreciate, something that maybe we come into closer contact with in a situation such as a retreat like this. And it's, you know, in a way it can look kind of idyllic, can't it? You know, we get to come on retreat, it's sort of a beautiful place, lovely nature, sort of trees and flowers and grasses and plants and, you know, people seem pretty friendly, don't have to do too much, it seems. And yet, it's not always easy, is it? To be here in a situation like this. And, you know, one of the, the questions I kind of like to ask or invite us just to know, you know, it's like, so how are you doing? How are we doing? This circumstance is very particular. And I'm sure there's as many different responses to that question of how are you doing, how, how are we all doing, as there are individuals here in the room. In fact, there's probably more than as many answers because we might each of us have more than one different response to that question. But what I often find myself reflecting on, and it's kind of, I think, interesting and curious to consider is the way in which, as, as some, some, of, some of you were speaking in, in one of the groups today, you know, the way in which it's actually quite hard and it feels quite busy, like there's no spare time. And I've often wondered how if one tried to explain this to one of one's friends who'd never been on a retreat before, how that would go down. It's sort of like, okay, so you're here. You know, okay, you have to do a, you know, an hour's work. So that's, you know, that's not necessarily what most people would call a full day's labour. Um, but apart from that, you, you kind of have to sit around on a cushion or a chair and they tell you expressly, don't try and do too much. And then, you know, maybe walk back and forth a little, stand around, not doing anything again. And um, meals appear three times a day. Um, it seems kind of hard to get to understand how this might be hard, how this might be challenging, how, might, how it might be that we find this not easy. And yet, of course, for many of us it isn't easy to do this. And I think that's really important to recognise, to remember, particularly if for you that was the case for some of the time or maybe much of the time, to understand that the situation we've created here will challenge us in many different ways. And one of the things we start to see in it is how actually not doing something isn't an easy thing for us. We might long for it, we might crave having less to do. And yet it's not always so easy for us. We, we kind of make something to do out of a simple meditative exercise whereby we start to measure and evaluate our progress, our success or our failure according to how we interpret what's going on. And so often there's a certain urge and urgency that kind of has a quality of impatience, sort of like, I've got to get somewhere, I've got to get there now or, or preferably even before now. Like as soon as possible, and I need some evidence to confirm that, you know, I'm getting somewhere, I'm doing something. We, we, we sort of have this process of measuring and evaluating ourselves and our experience. And there's often a kind of hardness and a harshness in that, which if we notice, 
if we notice, we can perhaps begin to soften, to, to leave ourselves in the kind of possibly uncomfortable and vulnerable condition of not quite knowing how we should evaluate this process, how we should evaluate the experience that we're having. Because the interesting, one of the interesting things about the situation that we've brought ourselves into, and in a way, I'd like to say we've chosen, but of course if we didn't know what we were getting into, it's a bit unfair to say we've chosen it. But we've, to some extent, consented to it at least by still being here. Um, we tend to think we should judge it by what happens. We think, we imagine we can evaluate the value of something or determine the value of something by the, the particulars of the experience that it gives rise to. And interestingly here, the value of this time, the practice and the engagement of your retreat is something that's only really going to be able to be known by way, by the way, by how and if it actually affects your life. Now of course, this is your life, so how it affects you now is part of that. But it's not the whole of it by any means. When I was uh, a young man and travelling in Asia and somewhat confused and concerned by the state of the world and having become concerned and confused by the state of the world I also having paid some attention to myself became confused and concerned by the state of my own heart and mind and wondering how to attend to, how to resolve both the circumstances of myself and the world and um, having encountered some teachings and practice in this tradition of meditation I I found a book in a bookshop where um, I was staying and I'd, uh, I was visiting my grandmother actually at the time, I'm one quarter Bengali and I'd just met her in my early 20s for the first time having come to where she lived in India in Calcutta. And I, I went to this bookshop nearby where she was that um, had, had a book by a Buddhist teacher whose name was Nyanaponika. And there was a, a phrase in it which when I read it somehow registered and has stayed with me through the years and the decades of my engagement and exploration of this practice. And in, in this, he, he said, he, he used the word mind, but um, I want to translate it as heart-mind, because what he's talking about is an is a, is a aspect, an element of our human experience that the Buddha used the word for in the, in the Pali language, which was the language we were chanting in, um, this morning in the ceremony that Gavin let us in the chanting of, and Pali is the language the Buddha's teachings were recorded in, um, though they were recorded some several hundred years after he had passed away. So not, it's not actually the language he spoke, which was always the local vernacular. And uh, I don't use a lot of Pali because the local vernacular is, is what we have here. But um, this is a useful word because we don't have an, it's The word is chitta, and it means heart-mind. It's that whole quality of our experience, an element of our experience which is affected, which is sensitive, which is resonant, which is touched by life, by experience, and which also responds, which can be reactive but also responsive. And, and um, we, could, we could talk about it as heart or as mind or as both perhaps, but the phrase that I want to share with you went, uh, went like this. He said, Nyanaponika, this, this, this uh, 
one of the early European um, monks who travelled to Asia and followed the Buddha's teaching and path. He said, this heart-mind is bound all over and yet it can know freedom here and now. And I think a very, very sweet and direct expression of the Buddha's teachings here. This heart and mind is bound all over. We can find ourselves so entangled in life in our patterns, in our reactivities, in the, in the frustrations, the complications, and the entanglements of life. And yet, there is a possibility, there is the capacity we have to know freedom, for the liberation of this heart and mind from that entanglement. And yet, in order for us to understand and to, in fact, realize that possibility for ourselves. And this is really the, the birthright of all of us as human beings. This is, in a way, the offering of the Buddha to humanity. This potential for awakening that we can all know that is possible. It requires us to begin with an acknowledgement of the situation we find ourselves in. That there is that which is difficult and hard to bear. The Buddha talked about and used the word dukkha, which I, I like. There's many words, it's, tra it's most commonly translated as suffering, but I think that's kind of limiting in a way. The, the best phrase I know for expressing it is from one of my teachers, um, where he would say, dukkha is that which is hard to bear. And so we understand it by the effect and the experience we have with those things in life that are not easy for us. Those things in life that we find difficult, that are hard to bear. They can both be the more immediate or obvious and classical sort of suffering or pain or loss and grief and sorrow, distress and many difficult things we can encounter as human beings. But also has a quality of, of dissatisfaction, of unfulfillment, a sense of possibility or potential that says to us, there must be more to life than this. And yet, we do not know how to access that, how to make that real for us. And so there's this, this sense of, of acknowledging that element of our life. That doesn't mean that's all there is in our life, but I think this is what brings us into a situation such as this retreat and whether for the first time or coming back after many such occasions. That sense of either that which we find difficult or we struggle with, hard to bear, or that sense of there must be more. There's a sense, something in us that kind of recognizes the remarkable but as yet untapped potential of a human life and would like to know, how does that come to be? How does that come to be? What we can see is, and we start to see it quite quickly as we settle into the silence, as we come into a retreat like this, and start to, in, in, in the meditation practice, we're, we're, we're sort of both training the mind, but we're also having the opportunity to see the, the way the mind and the heart, the way our mind and our heart 
operates, we could say, how it functions, how it's conditioned and impacted and affected by experience and the way that plays out. And what we can see is that so many of so much of the experience is kind of like a ongoing reenactment of, of thoughts and responses that we've had before. The Buddha talked about samsara as a cyclic process. This is the word for the sort of the being entangled in suffering, in dukkha, in unsatisfactoriness, that the image is used like a wheel that just keeps spinning, that keeps spinning. A little bit like a those, you know, like a hamster in a cage, and we're running and running and running, but we're not getting anywhere. And that much of this is expressed or manifests through patterns that we find ourselves compelled, it seems, or unable to not resist reenacting again and again. And they're patterns that don't always serve us, don't always lead to well being and fulfillment. That do not take us away from the entanglement and suffering that we long for. And there's something just to sit with that and just acknowledge. Huh. I mean, it doesn't sound like good news, does it? Sort of affirming the fact that there is suffering or dissatisfaction. You know, the Buddha talked about sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. And it sounded like it doesn't sound great, does it? You know, but he talked also about you know about aging, illness, and death. He talked about not getting what you want, about being separated from what you love, understanding that this is part of the universal story and the universal jo- journey of us all. And there's something about acknowledging it that actually I find gives some sense of relief. And it's like, oh yeah, it's like this, huh? That's not the whole picture. Of course, there is that which is lovely and beautiful. There is connection and there can be sweetness and intimacy and delight in so many ways of, and beauty and nobility. But there is also that which is not easy for us. And just seeing, okay, what, what, how do I respond to this? How do I relate to this? Because the, the story that we kind of absorbed from our culture, from our society, from the world around us, and that we somehow seem to replicate and sustain in ourselves often is that the way that we'll find happiness and fulfillment, the way we'll find somehow release from dissatisfaction or suffering is through the production and the accumulation of things and experiences. The idea that this is somehow going to do it for me, that if I just have more or better versions of the things that I've got, then somehow I'm going to be happy. Now, we might understand the limitations of that materialistic outlook. In fact, I'm sure you do, or else you probably wouldn't have come here on a retreat because there's not a lot of stuff on offer in that regard. And yet, in terms of things, it's perhaps more obvious to us that materialism doesn't quite bring fulfillment, can't bring satisfaction. And yet we can often somehow be looking for experiences to do that for us, perhaps meditative experiences or spiritual experiences, imagining that will be what serves us, what fulfills us. And so we have to ask ourselves, if, if this is something that we've been engaged in, 
unsuccessfully so far? Will continuing to do, continuing to engage in this way be likely to bring about a different outcome? There's a, there's a lovely story about Mullah Nasruddin, who's a Sufi teaching figure, both a wise man and a fool, it would seem. And on one occasion, his friends find him sitting at the corner of the village square on market day with a large pile of red-hot chilies in front of him. He's picking them up and eating them. And his, his eyes are, are bloodshot and streaming. His nose is running. His face is red. And he's obviously in a lot of distress. And so his friends say, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? And he picks up another chili and eats it. And his whole body shudders with the, with the impact. And he says, I'm eating these chilies. And they say, Mullah, Mullah, we can see you're eating these chilies. Why are you eating these chilies? And, and he says, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. And it's touching and it, it's kind of, there's something funny about it, but it's also because we see maybe we recognize ourselves. Oh, so often we're looking in the place where we haven't found what we were looking for, but we somehow keep looking there, looking for more, looking for, you know. If all the experiences we've had in our lives up to now haven't given us fulfillment, haven't brought us to a place of completion, maybe experience itself is not going to be that which does it for us. Any more than Nazaruddin is going to find suddenly a red-hot chili that is sweet rather than burning and fiery. And we can see in our own life the impact of this. There can be a, a weariness and a frustration born of you know, trying so hard to get to where we've kind of been told we need to get to in terms of material security, in terms of whatever it is that we're looking for and seeing that somehow we can't quite land there. We can't rest there. And also looking at the collective situation that our materialistic culture and it would seem to me our materialistic addiction as a collective human community has brought us to. And the situation such if we reflect on it we see that we're endangering our very, our very world. The climate and the ecology is disrupted and devastated and continuing to move in a trajectory that is unsustainable. And I was just in London before coming back to Devon for this retreat, engaged with a group called Extinction Rebellion who are calling for non-violent civil disobedience and participating in that, feeling very much the sense of how deeply entrenched we are as a, as a collective community that we're all part of in something that is leading us towards a tragically unwished-for outcome. And yet so hard it is for us to step back from that, to move away from this direction that we're traveling in. And, and just in naming that too, I'm aware that it, it's not an easy thing to have named, and yet it's something about just acknowledging, oh, this is where we are as human beings, collectively. And, and for me, engaging in spiritual practices, understanding comes partly out of understanding it's not just for the serving of my well-being and my happiness, but because I see that unless we as human beings can transform our hearts and our minds, we have little ability to really change the way we live in the world. And the consequences of this are not just painful and sorrowful, but in fact deeply tragic.
And so we see this, this movement of, of seeking to kind of gather experience. And it comes down when we look at it, when we examine it, we see we're drawn to, and it seems very understandably, to get more of what is pleasant, to have more of what is pleasant, and to avoid and to get rid of that which is unpleasant or unwished for. And it seems like, why shouldn't I do that? It makes complete sense to me. I don't like unpleasant experiences any more than anyone else. I enjoy pleasant experiences just like everybody else. And I think the Buddha too enjoyed that which is pleasurable and didn't enjoy that which was unpleasant. This is natural. This is human. And yet what we see is that the process of trying to pursue and accumulate the pleasant while at the same time trying to avoid and escape the unpleasant, somehow seems to entangle us with our life and entangle us in the mechanisms of craving and aversion, this desperate demand and needing for something that I don't have, or this absolute sort of unwillingness or it seems inability to make space for and accommodate something I don't wish for, but which is here. And these patterns, of course, they're biologically based. They have a survival imperative to them. So it's not like there's something wrong with them. At some level for our survival, we've had to learn to avoid that which is unpleasant because things that are scary or dangerous to us, we need to protect ourselves from. And to seek that which is pleasurable, that which is sweet or lovely, because this sustains our survival. And yet, this mechanism in itself does not really provide a basis for fulfillment or for happiness, for mm. deep well-being. And we kind of have to ask ourselves, how is it working out for me? Because the nature of experience is and we see this as we practice meditation, we can't control it. We can't even control our mind. We can't get our mind to just do what we tell it to. Has anyone managed it today? It's kind of like, it's kind of embarrassing actually, isn't it? It's like, especially if you've been doing it for years like I have, you know, especially if you even call yourself a teacher of it, so surely you should be able to. But actually what we learn, of course we can develop the capacity to stabilize, to steady and to focus the mind. Absolutely. But we also learn a kind of humility and a kind of understanding. Oh, it's not in my control. It's not really my mind in the way I imagined it to be. And likewise, the world is something that isn't subject to falling in line with how I want it to be. So we need to look perhaps a little more carefully at these these poles and these movements that we see. And one thing that's important here is to distinguish or to be able to discern the difference between that kind of sense of a, a, a thirst or a craving that demands things be a certain way, that I must have it like this, from a different quality which is more to do with connecting, where we feel the movement of wanting to connect, come close to, be touched by our experience. And it's equally important to distinguish the what we call aversion, that sense of rejecting or pushing away experience, to distinguish that from what is sometimes the appropriate need and important capacity to separate 
and to protect ourselves from that which may be harmful to us. But what we see is, if we look, if we watch what goes on inside, that when we act on craving and aversion, when we act on this kind of reactive, sort of, un, kind of unconsidered or unreflected on tendency, it leads to a sense of entanglement. There's a tightness, there's a contractedness that's painful to us. And we might notice that when we're met in the meditation practice, often what's difficult for us is not so much the experience that's happening, but the sense of it must not be this way. When it's difficult. The, or the idea, I can't endure it if it's this way. And yet, interestingly, of course, we are enduring it because it's happening already. And yet we don't want the experience to be so. What we might start to discover as we explore this path and this journey is that the deeper potential for happiness, for fulfillment, for satisfaction that we, that we long for naturally and appropriately, that like the real qualitative element of our life is really born of what we give to our life. Not so much from what we get out of it or what we get from it and so much we look at what's coming towards me what I'm getting by way of experience am I getting the experiences I want am I avoiding the experiences I don't want as if this would be the basis for our happiness and fulfillment and it's quite a a remarkable and yet I would say a blessed shift that happens for us when we start to see that oh actually there's always the possibility of making an offering, of giving something to the experience, giving something to what's happening here. And so when, when experiences are difficult, seeing, can I, can I bring some sense of kindliness to this? Can I bring some sense of care to the experience of my heart when I feel sorrow or grief or confusion or frustration? Can I bring some sense of softness to those places where I harden or tighten? Can I bring some patience? Can I offer some patience to the, the mind that desperately wants to know what's going to happen and where we're going to get to and whether we've got there yet or how long it will be? Can I, can I bring something and offer it into the situation which is really to do with our, our attitude and our caring for the circumstance of our experience? Not giving too much authority to the particulars, to the content, to what it is that's there. We might find sometimes that the mind is really calm and still and lovely. We can enjoy that. We might find other times that it's agitated or distressed, but that's okay. We can learn what it means to soothe and to hold that kindly too. So it's not that we're learning to somehow become disconnected from our experience. That's not what this practice is about. It's not about somehow walling off or defending ourselves against the movement of life, but actually becoming permeable to it, becoming transparent to it, so we can allow it to pass through and find a certain ground and space of being in which we can be rooted where we are 
and not carried away by reactions to the experience. The reactions that say, I must have this and I must not have that. And there's a kind of a wholeness that comes with this. When we're not saying to some of my experience, you are unwelcome. Because when we do so, of course, we're saying to some extent to ourselves that we and our experience is unwelcome. And we feel that as something deeply painful, as something that kind of, kind of, as like a rent or a, or a tear in the very fabric of our heart and our life. And without being aware of it, we're often feeding that message to ourselves, having received that message from others around us that somehow how and what we are and how and what our experience is, is not okay. And there's a kind of wholeness that comes when we start to open to the possibility that maybe what's here offers me an opportunity in whatever form it comes, in whatever shape it shows itself, it offers me the opportunity. And it always offers us an opportunity which we can respond to. Every experience offers us the opportunity to be present, to be awake. Now sometimes we're not that keen on what's being offered and we don't take the offer, so to speak. But ultimately this practice invites us to become unconditional in our willingness to meet, to receive experience and life. And there's an unconditionality which in fact releases our heart from bondage. That is born of exploring what is possible for us in this regard. And we'll of course encounter many challenging conditions while we're here. That's you know, the nature of the situation is in some ways we've taken away a lot of our normal escape routes. We've kind of chosen to put ourselves in a place where we can't escape our experience. Because of course, even when we're successful, if we're successful at escaping our experience, then we, we come to feel and live a life in which we're disconnected from ourselves and the world. And that in itself is deeply painful. More profoundly painful than the experiences we might find difficult or challenging. And so there's, there's many ways we can learn to respond to that which is not easy. To understand it as a, as a process of training, as a learning. And one of the elements of what we're training, that we're learning, is this, this quality of unifying of the heart and mind, a gathering together. And the word that's sometimes used to translate the word that the Buddha used, which was samatha, is sometimes used concentration and it evokes a sense of a kind of a, I find sometimes a, a tightness or a sort of a squeezing or a, we, we, um, we might remember, the, you know, like at, at school, I, I was sort of reflecting in the small group this afternoon, they're sort of being told by the teacher, concentrate. And it's kind of like got this really sort of kind of forceful, aggressive quality to it. And it makes me think of, you know, like, what happens to tomatoes if you extract all the moisture? You know, like concentrate. It's like kind of stodgy and dead, and um, it's useful for packaging it into small sort of spaces. But um, it's not really a, a useful ingredient by itself. 
And so concentration in that sense often has a tightness associated with it. Whereas if we understand it as unification, it's like a gathering together, a drawing together. And every time we come back into contact with our experience, we're gathering, we're collecting, we're coming back. And the, the image that can be really useful for this is, is as if we're training a puppy. As if there's this, okay, there's this mind that it just wants to run all over the place because all its life it's been allowed to do that. So it's not going to stop doing it because we say, okay, pay attention to the breath. Okay, feel your feet touching the ground. It's not going to do it just like that. But over time, the capacity can grow and develop. Just as if when we're training a puppy, we're actually kindly and say, oh, oh, it's run away. Okay, where have you? Oh, you've gone over there. Okay, come over. Oh, you've done one of those. Over. Oh, okay, come back here. It's like if we treat a puppy in that way, very soon it starts enjoying coming back. If we treat it with love and kindness. If every time a puppy runs away, we say, bad dog, and give it a thwack with a stick. And sometimes we do this to ourselves. Very soon it runs away at first opportunity. Because it knows that's not a very friendly or kindly place. So part of what we're doing is creating a place of kindliness where we actually would wish to be. And as we do that, our mind starts to become more at ease, abiding in the simply of simplicity of where we are. And so when, when things are more calm or more steady, we can be cultivating this quality of of focus, of steadiness, of gatheredness that we call samatha or unification. But at the same time as that, when things are more difficult or more challenging, if we're finding ourselves restless or anxious or, or sleepy or struggling with something or distracted all the time or, or touched by something sorrowful or grievous, that's actually a moment where we also have the invitation to practice opening our hearts. To practice a deep kindness of just, oh, this is where I am. Oh, this is what's here. Okay, can I, can I hold this with kindliness? Not being so worried in that moment for trying to sort of be focused and sort of precise with the attention. That's more a quality of softness. And maybe there's a, a kind of sort of fuzzy in the sense of a not needing to kind of be precise about it and yet very clear in one's intention of caring for the condition one finds in one's heart and one's mind. So that there can be different areas and elements of de development depending upon what's possible for us. And at times we'll find more quiet, more calm. There must have been, I imagine, for all of you, just maybe moments of that. Maybe for some, a little more. And we see that if we just keep coming back, if we just keep coming back, that capacity to come back slowly comes stronger, becomes more available, more accessible. And the ability to, to settle, to stabilize, just as a puppy eventually learns to heal and to follow when it's asked to come with us, so too our mind actually learns over time to settle, to steady, and to follow in the direction we, and the way in which we direct it. And so there's something specific I'd like to offer you also, I'm just remembering with regard to 
one of the very common experiences of meditation. We come and we've heard about sort of insight meditation and the Buddha and the, the possibility of human awakening and it might feel quite inspiring to us and yet it's not unusual that we spend quite some time on occasion feeling rather drowsy and sleepy and I don't know if anyone's encountered that over the, over the day of practice here but I've certainly seen a few of us where we sort of think hmm, the body looks like it's a little floppy. Uh, so there's something that I find really helpful for this. It, it's useful to open the eyes, to um, sit up straight, to give a bit more attention to the in-breath when you're feeling drowsy, not so much attention to the out-breath because you might discover that the out-breath is where we tend to soften, relax and sometimes collapse into that sleepiness. But there's something else which you can do which I find really helpful and it's not a, a traditional uh, posture. One might see images of the Buddha engaged in or uh, um, instruction that I ever heard from my teachers but I, I found I'm not quite sure how it came to be but I'd like to invite you to try this so just however you're sitting if you like just take a moment to notice your hands feel your hands and feel your shoulders just take a moment to lift your arms up just slowly put your arms up in the air so your elbows are above your shoulders if that's okay for your body if you have some bodily limitation that uh, you need to take care of, then just do what feels appropriate for you in relationship to that. And your hands can be facing forward or facing sort of towards each other, depending what feels better for you. See? And just notice what it's like to hold your hands in the air for a few moments. For most of us, we start to feel like it requires some effort after a little while. Now, there's, you won't do yourself any injury or harm holding your arms in the air like this, but it might become a little bit of work. And... With drowsiness, something that's really interesting here is that although there's almost no guarantees in meditation, anything can happen. There's an incredible range of human experience we encounter. I guarantee you will not fall asleep while you're holding your arms in the air. <laughs> it's never been reported. So just, just notice if you go a little bit beyond the bit where it's easy. Now that's different for each of us, so there's no comparison. But what I notice is when the shoulders have to start to work a little bit, it's sort of uncomfortable, it's a bit of an effort, I don't really like it. And I've, I've done this for hours, well, close to hours on occasion when I've been really drowsy, sitting late into the night. And what I notice is that the effort required to engage the arms like this actually helps the mind brighten. Like we can't, the mind can't tell itself to get bright or to be energized. It just doesn't work that way. But the mind can engage the body and the body can energize the mind. So if you like, you can just slowly lower your arms down. Now notice your hands and notice your shoulders as you do it. I'm curious if anyone has a, a word or two to describe what it feels like having done that or if they noticed any effect from doing that. Anyone want to say? Awake. Awake. Upright. Slightly sore. Heart rate's gone up. Interesting. Yeah. I notice a kind of bright, energized quality through my upper body and through the neck and the head. And it's not always what happens, but uh, it's like sometimes engaging our body in that way can be really helpful. And by working the muscles around the neck and the shoulders to hold the arms up, often the tension we hold there 
which we can't just release by saying let it go. If we, if we give the muscles some actual work to do till they get tired, then they release themselves. And so you might like to explore if that's useful for you in, in the meditation. If you're wishing to stay awake, I find it remarkably helpful and effective. And it's really in that sort of an illustration of the way we can use this practice to explore what's possible for me, what's useful for me here. And this is really, for me, that's the essence of the art of meditation, to see what's possible and what's useful. What's not possible, well, let's not worry about that. We're not here to do things that aren't possible. And if it's not useful, then why would I do that? But if it is useful, then let's see where it goes. Let's see where it leads. We have to be willing to step out of what is familiar and what is always comfortable in order to discover what is most true. And really the attitude I would invite and encourage you to cultivate and to develop as you're engaging in the practice in this, this kind of conscious process of paying attention, of coming back to, of slowly steadying and sustaining our capacity to be present. And at the same time working with the, the ways in which we resist and the ways in which we reject aspects and elements of our experiencing. Okay, can I include this too? Can I make room for this too? Whether it be something in the way of physical discomfort or mental agitation or just external conditions that aren't quite the way we want them to be. And there will always be plenty of these to notice. Saying, can I open to this? Can I make space for this? Can I bring a sense of care and kindliness to my experience, to my situation? In this inclusivity in this open-hearted engagement with our life a, a kind of unconditional engagement with life we give something profound and precious to ourselves and to all beings to all of life this process of settling of deepening of opening of awakening it all flows from this willingness to be present to be open and to be curious to see what might be possible here without needing to know how and when and even why it may come to be. The Zen monk and poet Ryokan he says, The rain has passed. The storm has ended. And the sky is clear again. When all things in your heart are pure, all things in your world are pure. 
Let go of this fleeting world. Abandon your struggle with yourself. And then the moon and the flowers will guide you along the way. Let's sit quietly together for a few moments to finish. So may we all in our practice here together, may we come to rest more deeply and fully in the simplicity of our experience, just as we are. And may we come to know the openness of heart and the unification of mind in which peace and freedom grow and flower. And may this be for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings and all that lives.